Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Notion Capital Podcast FM, the voice of European enterprise tech. Next up is our show, Go to Market Heroes, with Andy and his amazing guests. And talking of being a hero. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Go-To-Market Heroes podcast by Notion Capital. I'm Paul, your show host at large. I'm the Robin to the Batman. Andy being Batman, I'm just a sidekick. <laughs> and after having done all these episodes with Andy and gearing up to the end of the season, because we're reaching, not yet, not yet, don't fret, we still have a few to go. I realized that there's a few threads in Andy's philosophy of life and business. And one especially that encompasses it all is his love for makers and hobbyists, whether it's musicians like Kraftwerk who hacked together their own instruments or the early pioneers that almost handcrafted the early computers that are filling Andy's computer's museum. He's not in that museum today, actually. And I keep calling it a museum. It's not a museum. I know we assess that, but I love calling it a museum anyway. And I think that's why we got along so well, because I love tinkerers, you know, people who try new stuff and sometimes these hobbies become businesses or even market trends. So am I right, Andy, in saying that it's also maybe the way you see the people you invite here, you know, people and pioneers who shaped the SaaS world. Today will be about customer success and perhaps as well why you're at Notion Capital because you're trying to find the next pioneers, the current tinkerers, the current makers that will shape the business world of tomorrow. Good question, Paul. And I hope with today's guest, we're going to get into some of this, okay? When SaaS started, they shoehorned all the kind of old world into the new world and said, well, kind of let's just carry on with that. And I think today's guest is going to show that actually that thinking has just moved on dramatically since those days. So now, now we're firmly into the SaaS cloud world. Those early kind of pioneers of SaaS would probably not recognize what we're doing today. Things have just moved dramatically in terms of the, I would say the one thing that really defines this is customer centricity. That's really become pervasive in everything we do now. Whereas before, it was more finance centricity, I would, I would claim. You know, so things have moved a lot. This is something I've seen, actually, in all the interviews we recorded so far, actually. This is also fascinating. For me, knowing less about this world that you guys do, clearly there's been an evolution that seemed to have gone very, very quickly into something that has now its own vocabulary, you know, something that was less defined became way more defined. So I'm sure you're clearly someone who likes to go from a bit, not chaotic, but the early start of Big Bang, and then it forms, and you're part of that story. So you just said that today we're going to touch on that. I've actually heard the name of our guest many times, and not only in the context of you, Andy, when you told me that we would invite him. So I'm very, very, very curious to hear what he will say. So please, Andy, can you introduce to us the hero of the day? Absolutely. I am thrilled that today we are joined by someone... I have been waiting to get on the show, Ram Dhaliwal. If anybody knows anything about customer success, they will know this name. Yeah. Because exactly. I think Rav is, he's pulling a face now, so nobody can see that on the podcast. <laughs> but I think he's been very instrumental in really driving how people think about customers and putting them right front and center in everything we've done with SaaS. So he's got a great history in SaaS. He's worked at some great names. I'm just going to embarrass him now because he probably won't big himself up. But going from IBM to Salesforce to Yammer to Zendesk and most recently Slack, 
he's really, really pioneered a lot of, I would say, thinking around this and has certainly influenced a lot of my thinking, you know, in time that I spent with him. So I'm thrilled that Rav can join us today. And I'd like him to kind of walk through this evolution, hopefully get some golden nuggets that people can take away and use in their own business, and then get into what's exciting him. But let me first of all, welcome him to the show, Rav. Thank you so much, Andy. And thanks, Paul. I'm Try to work out if you're Batman and Robin, am I the Joker or Commissioner Gordon? So we'll, I guess we'll figure out whether it's, uh, if, we'll figure that out as we, we go along. But no, really good to be here. Thank you so much for that introduction. That's very kind. No worries. I think if people have spent any time in SaaS, they would have probably bumped into you somewhere. Yeah, I am dangerously overexposed. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, you know, I think there's a couple of things that you've said over the years that have stuck with me. And the one that I was chuckling about last week was the do everything department. We can kind of get to that, you know, because that was, um, yeah. I was actually sat in a business meeting and I said, well, if it's not sales and it's not marketing and it's not product and it's not HR finance, then it must be the do everything department. And also I thought, uh-oh, I think I get killed by Ram for saying that. <laughs> So yeah. I better be careful what I'm saying. So, hey, welcome to the show. Thank you. I've looked back on LinkedIn and kind of poked and prodded at your early career. So how did you get started? And before customer success even existed, yeah. how did your career get started and kind of what launched you into where you are now? Wow. Okay. So I graduated in the early 90s. So I'm going to show my age now. And the year I graduated, graduate recruitment was down 65%. So I started my working life as a builder, laborer, and plasterer. My neighbor was like, hey, I need a hand. And I'm like, well, I need the money. And after doing that for about six months, I was like, yeah, I want to get a job that involves working indoors. So that was kind of my major drive. (laughs) It's like, I just want to get a job working indoors. And I mean, well-paid work, very hard work. And I had, you know, done at uni a lot of Unix and stuff. And so I actually managed to land a job as a Unix admin in a public library service of all places. I think I was 21. It was full of... Basically, ladies were the same age as my mum. So I just got mothered like every day coming to work. Oh, you just remind me of my son. So I tried to grow a beard and look older and none of that worked. But, you know, I was there for a couple of years. I really learned about working with people in that role, I think, you know. So even though I was a Unix admin, the library system had loads of problems and it had moved to this new system and I was constantly dealing with people. And I found I enjoyed the people bit as much as the, the tech bit. And that then led me on to, I think, my first sort of corporate job, if you like. I worked at what was then Anderson Consulting, obviously now Accenture. And that was a little baptism by fire because I'd come from public service, very different. And I was a, a network and Unix and a network person. So I had, you know, become a Novell engineer, which is what was really hot at the time, file and print services. They hired me as a Unix Novell admin. And I came in and the first day goes, you've heard of Lotus Notes, right? I said, no, I've never heard of it. We're going to put you on third line note support. And that's it. And, you know, I literally just got thrown into productivity and collaboration. And I didn't realize that's actually what most of my career up into becoming an investor would involve. And so, you know, I did some in-house roles and then eventually landed at really, I think, the people who invented office collaboration and productivity, which was Lotus, Lotus Incorporated. People often remember it for inventing the spreadsheet, but it actually invented a whole suite of office collaboration tools. In fact, prior to office, it was the dominant office productivity with its smart suite bundle. People forget about that. I went and worked in Asia and worked for them in Australia for 10 years and, and went all around Asia. Then really SaaS started to become a thing. And so I was lucky enough to land a role with the SaaS pioneer Salesforce, which ironically was in the building opposite the building at Lotus where I worked. So it was literally on the other side of the car park. So I I left IBM one Friday and came back on the Monday, same time, same train 
that just walked into the building on the left front <laughs> and one on the right. And I actually could see my old desk from my new desk, which was kind of really quite ironic. And through a various bits of circumstances, I landed at Yammer, which was a startup, massive shock to the system going from the, these big companies to, to startups. I uh, had a call earlier today with someone looking for advice of getting into tech. And I was like, well, if you join a startup, you're in a large consultancy, you know, it's, it's a lot to sometimes take in. But that's really where I landed in the first named, named role, customer success, everything I'd done up to that point was working with customers. It was helping them to be successful, but not, if you like, overtly. And learned a great deal there working for David Saxon and a really great leadership team. And we obviously got acquired. We ended up back at Microsoft. And that was actually a very positive experience. Having worked in a big company, I thought Microsoft was actually a really good place to work. But I felt like I got a little bit of this startup bug. And one thing I was really looking to do at that stage in my career was to really build the muscle of being a people leader. Like I'd been a team leader, I'd been a manager, but I wanted to take the next step. And this opportunity arose at Zendesk, which was still very, it was successful, but it was still growing to really hone that skill. And I had a really wonderful time. There's this amazing team. I learned a great deal. Many of the people I hired are still there and they're progressing in their careers, which I'm really happy about. And then after Zendesk went public, the um, CMO of Zendesk, Bill Mesitis, left and became the CEO of this little company no one had heard of called Slack. And he took some of his team with him and they kind of knew I'd been at Yammer and Yammer was kind of the slack of its day. And every once in a while, I'd get a ping saying, hey, can we chat with you about this? We're trying to think this through. How did you guys do this at Yammer, blah, blah, blah. And then these conversations kept happening more regularly for longer. I would be in San Francisco and meet the team there. And uh, I then jokingly, just really flippantly just said to Bill and teams, I, I talk to you more than I talk to the team at Zendesk. I think you should start paying me. Right. And this was like a completely off the cuff remark. And they were like, seriously, would, would you seriously entertain that? And I was like, oh, oh, OK. And so, you know, I was like completely happy at Zendesk, but I had this kind of itch to get a little bit back into that collaboration productivity space. And then I think I was interviewed by everyone at Slack. It was like 80 people in the company at the time. I think I was interviewed by all of them, but it felt like it anyway. So I convinced Stuart to have a London office because there was no London office. Hire me and to do this customer success thing and prove it out. And I think it's now either the third or fourth biggest part of the business, if I remember correctly. So that's wow. a very potted history of the last, whatever, 25 years. And now I understand why I am knackered all the time, right? So, you know, just just, uh, just that whole experience is uh, exhausting just talking about it. Well, I'm nodding and laughing because we had Dan Hyde from Aravina on the show. Oh, and he yeah. said something that really resonated with me. He said... Andy, that startup journey, you could probably do three, four, possibly five times maximum, and then you're going to be a very tired person. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. it, it, it's exhausting. Yeah, so I'm, that's sure. why I'm nodding But it's off. also addictive and exhilarating. That's the problem. True. Now, as an investor, people sort of ask me, that, well, why aren't you an entrepreneur after all this experience? And I'm like, oh, no, no, there's way easier ways to make money. I'm quite happy to sit next to the entrepreneur, you know, <laughs> and, and, and help. I explained this to someone the other day. Working in a startup and owning a business unit, that's like being a parent. Being an investor, it's like being an uncle, right? It's a much better job, right? You, you, know, you, you spoil them, you give them money, you give them sage advice, you stop them from doing stupid things, and then you go on your way, right? It's a much better way to make a living, if you ask me. 
<laughs> good, good advice. Yeah. So that history, and by the way, you've just perfectly talked about how kind of hard work rewards hard work and some of the great companies you ended up in. So congrats on that. Well, I blame my parents for instilling this whole thing about, you know, work hard, you get the reward. So they're totally It is. Yeah. Well, it's true. You know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. But what was the point where it tipped from being kind of support to customer success? Who was the company that you thought, I don't know whether it could have been Salesforce, I don't know, who really formalized it in your mind to go, this is not support. This is something much, much bigger than that. Brilliant question, Eddie. So there's a lot of debate about where it first started. There's some obscure sort of software companies that claim credit. Some people claim it was Oracle that invented it. But regardless of where it came from, it was really Mark Benioff and Salesforce that popularized it and made it a thing. And that's both a good and a bad thing. It was a tremendous innovation at the time, but I think it's unfortunately completely unintentionally set a template, which I seem to be on a one-man mission to undo. And the reason for that is that, and I wrote about this recently, you may have read it, I wrote an article called The Missing Piece of Software Sales. It's on Medium if anyone wants to read it is if you actually look at Salesforce back in 1999-2000 and you look at a contemporary SaaS startup, all the ones, Andy, that you and I spend our time looking at and working with, structurally, from a go-to-market perspective, they almost organize exactly the same way. Like, Despite the fact that now that company has got a completely different way of building software, distributing it, licensing it, selling it is completely different. The organization structure, especially the organization structure in sales, I call it the orthodox sales production line is almost exactly the same. And Salesforce was the same. You know, it's full of Oracle DNA. They learned how to do what they did from Oracle. But what they found was by changing the distribution to cloud, switching cost was really low because the customers made an operating expenditure, not a capital one. So when I was at IBM, I don't think in the entire time I was there, I ever worried about the customer using a product because it's going it's to take us two years to put this thing in, right? They've just bought data center space and racks and backup solutions, and we've trained administrators, there's so much capital involved. No one at this business is going to put their hand up going, I think this product was a mistake. Let's stop with it, (laughs) right? They're going to keep going. And so I think what Salesforce realized was we're doing great. We're selling, we're selling, we're selling, but we've got five, seven, six, eight percent churn. And I think it was Dave Dempsey actually in Ireland who really did the numbers on that. And he said, hey, before we all start slapping each other on the back, we got a very leaky bucket and we need to do something about that. And so their innovation was this idea of customer success. Now, Salesforce has obviously gone on and become hugely successful. It's the bellwether for enterprise software, really. Multi-product company, very successful, but it's unintentionally set a template for people to go, you can just do sales the same way, orthodox sales, just bolt this CS thing on at the end, all your problems are solved. And what I found in my career is that's not the case, (laughs) is you can do that if you, first of all, have early entry and incumbency into a market and you scale or you have giant financial resources to build a 5,000-person customer organization. So I think what Salesforce did in the scale of its customer business, you just can't get the capital to do that now. You just can't make that capital expenditure. So a lot of what I spend my time on talking to people and helping people with is when you've sold, the job hasn't finished. The job of selling hasn't finished. You're moving into a continuous sales motion. How can we help you build a foundation of which CS is a part? to not just sell once, but continuously sell. So a lot of that has to do with unpicking the orthodox sales structure, helping people build incentive structures to make it worth people's while to continue selling. And so in the article that I talked about, I kind of 
presented this idea of mirroring. Well, it takes normally at least two sets of skills to sell for the first time, commercial skill and some product skill, AESE. Well, you need to mirror that and you need to have commercial skill, AE or account manager tied with a product expert, customer success person. And that should help you create a nice flywheel of continuous selling. So long way of answering your question. I think Salesforce really pioneered this. Everyone took it as a template. And what I've discovered in my career and worked with like lots of companies now as an investor is that template needs a little bit of refinement now, I think, because just times have changed. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of that progression of your skills, you know, so you you would have made the leap at some point from kind of individual contributor to a manager and then to a leader. And I kind of differentiate between managers and leaders. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. When was that first time when you were handed it to say, right, you're the leader, you're going to build it from scratch, go make it happen. And it was kind of completely in your hands. That was after <laughs> well, Salesforce, I think. Yeah. You just reminded me of exactly the conversation of when this happened. So I was at Yammer and I was sitting in a room with my boss and he's like, well, look, this is what I'm thinking. We should divide the team like this. And, you know, this colleague will have this and, you know, you should lead this. And I was like, I've never really thought about that. Like, I'd never thought about that. And he could sort of see that I was thinking about it and I hadn't occurred to me. He said, look, you don't have to be a manager or a leader to be successful in your career. If that's not what you want to do, that's fine. You can have a really terrific career just, you know, getting to the top of your game, doing what you're doing. And I almost instantaneously went, well, if someone's got faith in me that they think I can do this, I should probably at least give it a go, right? And that was the first time that I realized, actually, this is a vocation. This is something that you should be doing. And I will be happy to admit I made every single rookie manager mistake there is to make, which is assuming the team could read my mind, trying to manage every person in the team exactly the same way, even though they're all different individuals. You know, I made all those mistakes, all of them. And... And I mentioned that one of the reasons why I moved on to Zendesk was I realized, oh, I think I've made enough mistakes and learned from them now that I'm in a position to actually like build that muscle of leadership. And I'd be very interested to hear, Andy, what your differentiation is. But for me, management is about productivity and tasks and delivering to an outcome where leadership is actually, no, I'm setting a vision and a direction and I'm getting everyone bought into following that vision and we'll build the machine together. That's kind of the reason why I left, because I thought I've got an opportunity to maybe do that. And that was a very interesting experience at Zendesk, because having that blank campus was like, it's liberating, but scary, right? Because there's there's no roadmap. Yeah. So you look at what works, you go talk to people who are doing similar things, you try to learn from peers, you make more mistakes. But what I learned there was really the idea of my job actually as a leader is to create the conditions for the team to do its best work. That's what yeah. I realized. And I realized that was actually mostly getting out of their way. That was actually mostly where I added the most value is how do I kind of set the vision, set the strategy, make sure you're all bought into it and then get out of your way, but create an environment whereby you are fully on board with the fact that I'm here to help you with your career. And hopefully that career will continue to be either in the team or in the company. But in return, what I really want you to do is be responsive and call out early if there's a problem. That's fundamentally it. And that's, that was kind of the first time I really learned that my job is not to build a machine per se. That's part of the job. My job is to create the conditions for the team to, to do the best work and to really help them in their careers. So I, hopefully that answers the question. Though. It does. And I concur. That first moment where you're handed it is kind of a daunting task. Yeah. And you've got to make a couple of mistakes to actually get comfortable with yourself as well, you know, in, in that whole story. Thinking back on it, Andy, the one thing I realized is that it's your success at doing that 
It's so dependent on the models you have around you that you might try and emulate. And what I've actually come to realize is I spoke last year to a company in San Francisco. They invited me along to one of their all hands. I said, I actually learned the most from the worst leaders that I worked for, not the best ones, because I actually have learned more about what not to do from some of the really awful people that I've worked with. And they're not awful people. They were just not very good leaders. That has actually been invaluable because I've come across a new situation and go, okay, well, this person would have done this or this. So definitely don't do that. So you can at least exclude that from thing. And actually, I've learned more from that than than maybe more positive role models. I've actually, it's the negative role models. I think that have helped me the most, (laughs) which sounds perverse. No, I get that. I get that. Hey, so the podcast is called Go to Market Heroes, and yeah. we we like to dig into different go to market motions. And you know, you've been in a number of different companies that have had, I'm sure, very different views on how they're going to grow, how they're going to scale. How do you think that affects customer success? So, you know, in this series of podcasts, we've talked about open source and product led growth and traditional enterprise sales and marketplaces. How does that influence your thinking when you start to think about customer success, i.e. what's core should you absolutely always have? And then how do you think about what goes around that depending upon the actual go-to-market motions? Yeah, I think what you've hit on there, Andy, is, is one of the key challenges with anything related to customer success is, first of all, it doesn't really have a strict definition. I mean, we can go to someone off the street and go, tell me what sales does. And they go, well, you ring up strangers and ask them for money, right? Everyone knows what that means. What does a customer success do? I don't know. There's no definition. So that's one thing. The other thing is the reason it doesn't have a definition is highly contextual. What it takes to make a customer successful in one business is entirely different from what it is in another. And I don't think enough people accept that because then what you often do is you go to businesses and they have this cookie cutter thing of like, well, we did this here, so we'll just do it here. And you go, but that worked for, that company was a large enterprise top-down selling motion you're a freemium bottoms-up motion, that doesn't seem to work. So there is actually, to your point, an incredibly strong correlation with your distribution model and actually how you service your customers. So I have become less and less a fan of freemium models over the years because what I've seen is that they result in two general problems. Both of them manifest itself in the CS org. One, you very rarely get in a freemium model, a decision maker of sufficient weight or an executive sponsor, because it's bottom-up led. And two, you tend to have people who, when they convert to paid, have generally very low proficiency of using the product because they've just figured it all out themselves, right? Now, that is actually worse from a CS perspective because you're going to someone who's used the free version of your product for a year and going, hey, I'm here to help you because you're not really using this product as well as it could. And they go, what are you talking about? I've been using it for a year. Don't worry about it. We don't need any help. And so you've got two problems there. One, I do not have an executive sponsor I can talk to to try and grow the footprint. And two, I got really low proficiency of usage, which is going to make getting a renewal really tough, right? So I think that's one thing I've seen in the freemium model. Free trial, I think, works a lot better because there's some intentionality there on the user to participate and you can actually bring either people or in-product resource to help them. And then I think there's a kind of a third model, which is, you know, you're largely self-service business. You're largely inbound. You have essentially a long tail of customer. Your your average deal size may be quite small, but you've got thousands of these customers. And the problems I see there are people try to build a large enterprise style CS company into that kind of motion. And really what you should be doing there is customer marketing. You should lean in really heavily you know, in product and customer marketing backed up by a smaller group of people. And so the fact it's contextual and you have these different models, you know, I've been lucky. I've worked in different companies and seen what works and what doesn't work. 
I've also seen try to go from one model to another because we're moving up market to enterprise and realizing that that model doesn't work either from an organic bottom-up conversion to suddenly selling to enterprise. And that model doesn't work because generally you've got the wrong people. You can get fooled into thinking a product is so good, this thing sells itself, so I can use the same people to do the large enterprise selling. And you're like, well, you could have more generalist sellers or sellers from advertising or others in that inbound conversion because you weren't doing any negotiation, you weren't doing any discounting. You know, it's order taking fundamentally. It's hard for a lot of those people to make that transition to, oh, I'm not selling to one person now, I'm selling to 15 in a giant organization. So I've seen that problem as well, where either the gap between sorting that problem out was too long, or we didn't try and sort it out. We tried to just do it with the same people and suddenly started doubting ourselves going, oh, maybe we don't have product market fit enterprise. So, so that's a kind of, I guess, a potted history of like looking at these different models, but the long and short of it is how you sell and how you expand correlate very heavily to how you should work with the customer. Yeah. And I see that, you know, the people that listening to this, by the way, will predominantly be late seed series A, series B type companies. So that correlation, they need to kind of figure out quite early. And I started the podcast tongue in cheek laughing about this phrase, you know, the do everything department. Give me some context as to where that came from, because it still makes me smile now. (laughs) Yeah, that certainly became a thing when I I wrote that article last year. And uh, I think the team at Gainsight picked up on it and they just pushed it out everywhere and it suddenly became a thing. But my observation was, you know, we talked about this orthodox sales production line and then this Salesforce's innovation of I'll bolt something onto the end of that to stop the leaky bucket. What that's generally resulted in, if you combine that linear production line with the idea of, so in other words, we're still selling software largely the same way as we did when it was capital expenditure, even though it's now operating expenditure. We'll bolt this thing on at the end. But that thing at the end doesn't really have a definition or we don't quite understand what KPIs it has. The natural tendency then is for anything that doesn't have an owner in the organizational structure or stuff that isn't wanted in the organization structure gets pushed back down to that department because they're at the end of the production line. So the analogy I always give to founders is if you were making cars, what you've basically done is you've taken a production line and you've said to the person at the end of the production line, the person in the showroom, Well, your first job is to get the car delivered to the customer on time, right? But our car is slightly different from everyone else's, so you have to teach them how to drive our car as well, right? And while you're teaching them to drive, can you just sort out any production manufacturing assembly defects that happened further back in the factory? And while you're doing that, get them to buy leather seats and a rear camera and some other add-ons. Oh, and get them to come back next year and buy another car, (laughs) right? (laughs) That's what I mean by the everything department. You would not do that if you were selling cars. Yet we do that all the time, selling software. Yeah, okay. It still makes me smile because I see it almost every week as well now. So, yeah. yeah. But I think, I think Andy, the, the stage of companies that you're at, this sort of talking about the Series A, Series B, I don't think they're doing that intentionally. I think that's, we've talked about this, this idea of unbundling. So you get to a certain point in the startup's growth where you have a lot of people wearing multiple hats because you have to. First of all, you haven't figured out what you need yet. And second of all, you haven't got the resources to go hire individual roles and So what then happens is you kind of get into this muscle of like just continuing to have people with bundled responsibility when really you need to unbundle it and start having more specialization. Like I can't have a person who sells, onboards, does the security, renews, because that doesn't scale anymore. They're all individual disciplines that need to be done at scale. So sometimes it's just a case of timing around when you unbundle or not. So. 
Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you the million dollar question, but in this environment, it's probably the billion dollar question. Yeah, now. yeah. Yeah, our valuation just went up there. It's great. Fantastic. I know. We just did a 10x <laughs> straight away, just in, this, in the middle of the podcast. So the orchestration through an organization used to be very, very sequential. So it would be handoffs between marketing to sales, et cetera. Yeah. So now in this new world, and the lines are blurred, I realize that as well. So, you know, I get this question all the time, you know, when should sales hand over accounts and should they carry the quota for renewals? And hey, you know, upsell, should they be shared between customer success and sales? How do you kind of untangle that when you start to think about it? And, you know, remember that we just talked about the different go-to-market models. Yeah. It may be that they're not doing a big all-you-can-eat global enterprise yeah, most people deal. don't, right? They start small and grow into it, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I try to actually abstract it away from the organizational structure as much as is possible because the thing with that linear structure is you actually do need it because as you scale, the business has to be much more about predictability and efficiency. And so that that's actually what the org chart's designed for. If you go back and look in history, it was invented by a guy called Frederick Winslow Taylor and he wrote this book called The Principles of Scientific Management. And so his idea was... Almost all manufacturing is artisanal. It's some you know, metal worker with high skill. And what we should do is take that job, divide it into 50 jobs that are unskilled that we can maximize the output of. And he radically, radically altered steel production. And you need that. You need that organizational structure as you scale. So that's why I'm a favor of kind of abstracting away from the organization structure and thinking more about the incentive structure. So if people are in two different departments, but we need both of their skills to achieve an outcome, I need to incent them to work with each other. I need to make part of how they are paid, at least painful enough that they were like, yep, I've got to set up my CS person for success. I've got to set up my account manager for success. Otherwise, neither of us get paid. That I think is actually a better way to think about it. And overall, philosophically, try to get everyone from leadership down to accept this idea as like, we're in this continuous selling motion. We don't stop selling. And I think if you can try and do those two things, look, a really good example is you could do this all the way through marketing, through product, through engineering, through sales success. Don't pay an engineer on shipping the feature on time. Pay them on how much the feature is used. That's one way of changing the incentive structure to think about a different outcome. Pay 60% of the AM's time on new revenue, but 40% on NRR, net revenue retention. Make the CS person 60% 60% NRR, but 40% ACV. So now we put them on the same territory. They've got to work with each other because they're not getting paid, right? But their incentive is such that the big part of their incentive is driving the primary behavior you want them to drive. So I always think about it less about org structure and where it sits and who needs to do what, just more of what skills are needed to do X and how do we incent the people to work together to deliver X? So in a very reductive way, I say this to founders all the time. It was like, why can't I just have the CS person do everything? I just said, can you explain to me why it took two sets of skills to sell, but it only takes one set of skills to do everything else? (laughs) You know, that's just the simplest way to look at it. Very true. So just moving on to one of the other areas that I love your perspective on, the emerging role of the chief customer officer, the CCO. I'm wondering, you know, what do you think that is? And when do you need one? Because I get a lot of questions from companies where, especially when they're on the A to B journey and they're about to raise their B and they go, no one needs a CCO at A to B. <laughs> well, they, they want to fill out the C-suite. Yeah. So I want to fill out the C-suite. That's for a different reason though. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What do I need? So yeah. what are your thoughts on, you know, when do you need a CCO? What should they be doing? And also where, where do they sit in the leadership team as well? You know, really good point. I think what, what generally I've seen happen, well, reasonably consistently is that if you're successful as a business, 
couple of things happen. You start accelerating A, B, C onwards. Everything, the pace of everything just drastically increases, right? Everything, not just adding people, everything gets quicker, but the complexity also goes up. So what I used to do to make an SMB customer successful just does not scale at a large global enterprise we're now selling to because they need four or five different sets of things to make them successful. So they might need adoption specialist who does change management plus a technical specialist to help them build on the platform plus a priority level of support because, you know, if this is mission critical for us, we can't do business. You know, the complexity of what they need gets bigger from a customer perspective. That's normally the time where you want to think about having someone who owns all of those customer pieces, you know, VP customer, customer, chief customer officer, just simply because the disciplines require, it's become now multidisciplinary. We've unbundled from one role into several roles and now several roles into several teams. So just the orchestration of that, building that machine, running it, making sure it's efficient, returning back to the business needs to be owned by someone. So that's generally, I think, the signal that you need to have someone own those multifacets. And they'll typically own customer experience or customer support, as it's often called, professional services, the customer success management organization, maybe a partner organization, technical, and sometimes renewals, because if that leader actually comes from a commercial background, it can make sense to have that all in in one organization. So that's how I view it. It's someone who sits you know, in the executive team, but ultimately all of that is to drive net revenue retention. So, you know, chief revenue officers driving ACV, CCOs driving NRR, because without the NRR, it doesn't matter how much ACV we add, we're going to go out of business eventually. Yeah. And that leads straight on to my follow-up question was going to be, what are the absolute key metrics? You know, if, you, if you're in a board meeting, and yeah. you've got the board pack and the CCO is about to present, what are the absolute things that they need to be nailing in that board pack, do you think? Yeah, I think it's two. One is time to value. That's highly contextual. So that is some kind of proxy of product usage where you go, if customers get to this level of product usage, they're seeing value from the solution, right? And ideally, you want that to take 30, 60, 90 days, not seven months, 10 months. In a cloud world, it's got to be measured in, you know, like a quarter, right? You can't go on for months and months and months unless it's a multi-year deal. So time to value, that will be different in every business. And that will change actually in, in the business over time. But the other one is net revenue retention. So how much revenue are we retaining and how much of that retained revenue are we, we growing? How much are we adding back to the company's bottom line? And this is actually a challenge, I think, in, we talked about that historical mindset CS practitioners have a historical mindset. They have an historical mindset of, I'm here to make the customer happy and prevent churn. And we really have to move on from that. It's like, you're here to make the customer successful so we can grow new revenue. And so I think there's there's work to be done there in shifting the mindsets of people at the customer end in, in saying it's all right to have a commercial goal. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You're pulling a lever of business value. That's what you should continue doing. I'm smiling, by the way, because I remember meeting a CIO of a Fortune 500 company many, many years ago without dating myself too much. And he said to me, he said, Andy, do you realize the average tenure of a CIO is about two and a half, three years? So in my job, I either make the selection of a piece of software and start the implementation, or I inherit someone else's yeah. selection of software and complete the implementation. Never both. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That he talked about it. Yeah. yeah. And normally it's the former because you say, we're going to do this. And when the business does it in five years, we'll have saved 50% on TCO, 
but I'll be long gone by then. So if it doesn't work, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so where do you think next in the evolution of customer success then? You know, look at the market right now. You know, we have got wedges and whole new markets being created. You can sell much further downstreaming to smaller customers because the cost of acquisition has come down dramatically. There are now companies that are pre-revenue all the way through many, many funding rounds. You know, how do you think customer success is going to evolve in the coming years? Any things that you see on the horizon? Yeah, and I'm going to do a classic investor thing now of talking up my own book because one of the things that I've been doing personally is finding, working, nurturing, and giving money to entrepreneurs who are building tech precisely for CS. So I've made four or five investments. I'm going to make a few more. These are all personal investments that I've made because I think that is the thing we're going to see over the next few years. We have some purpose-built tech in the form of CRMs for CS, but there's a whole other stack that needs to be invented. You know, marketing has its own stack, sales has its own stack. And I think what we'll see over the next five years is CS will have its, well, if I have my way, will have its own stack. And I think actually it will be able to take much greater advantage of advances in things like AI and machine learning in that stack. So as companies I'm talking to right now, we're figuring out how we can tell how a customer is really feeling. I'm like, wow, that's gold dust, right? If you can take the subjectivity out of sentiment, that's just as important as product use, right? So I think COVID has been a bit of an accelerator for that too. I think there was a period last year where a lot of very panicked CEOs were like going, we're probably not going to sell anything for a while. I got double down on the customer base and I have no idea about how we look after customers at all. <laughs> it's a none. So I think that kind of has raised the prominence and I don't think it's a coincidence. I've started to see more entrepreneurs building, you know, for these use cases. Yeah, I agree. I think the pandemic has just accelerated so much of this change. You know, the whole customer experience, the employee experience all needed to be digitized and needed to be from anywhere, like even for employees and customers and support operations, etc. Yeah, I think Aaron Levy tweeted, we've seen a decade's worth of digital transformation happen in two months. And I think that's spot on because we had to. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that I actually saw a couple of companies that they looked at the accelerated use of their products during the pandemic and said, you know what, we can actually achieve this year's plan with our existing customer base because of that acceleration in adoption and usage. So that was an interesting trend. Well, again, that's terrific because essentially what they're saying is NRR is the key for us to be a successful business. And it's the one metric I constantly find that organizations don't have an owner for. It's a byproduct. They report on it. It goes into the board deck, but there's no owner for it. I find that staggering, you know, because that is the classic number you would want a customer organization to own, right? You know, we're putting all of this material effort and money into servicing our customers. We want to get some return for it, surely. Yeah. yeah. So I always like to finish with what you're seeing that you kind of admire or kind of look at, you know, they're really good direction or a standard for where we're going, either people, organizations, teams, anything out there that you particularly admire at the moment and you look at and think, I'd really like to understand that more, unpick that more, or even get involved with that a bit more. Well, I talked about it a moment ago. I think some of these entrepreneurs who are really thinking this through about how do I build technology that helps CS type practitioners, but ultimately benefits their customers. I've really admired some of the thinking about that. There's a company called CastApp, which I've been working with, who have realized that one of the biggest pains is trying to do reviews with customers, right? They're too busy they don't have enough time. They're a nightmare to prepare. And they've essentially just built this proprietary video tech that sucks up all your data and builds them a custom video on the fly. And they just watch the video. It's amazing. And, you know, that I'm really super impressed with because it's like, first of all, just from an engineering perspective, it's amazing. But it sounds like such a trivial problem, but it's a massive problem. It's a massive problem. 
And that stuff I kind of really admire that people have gone and they're so empathetic towards not just the practitioners, but the customers. They want to make everyone's life better. And all the investments I've made personally, I've, that's essentially I've been attracted to the fact that they really got so much empathy for the people who have the problem. They're trying to build something world-class to help them. So, And actually, we're talking about leadership and management earlier. I've got to say, I really admire anyone who through this period has had to manage a team or lead a team because I know right now if I was, I would suck at it. Like I would find it so hard to manage a team and keep them motivated and you know, to do that all remotely, that is a whole set of skill I do not have. So, you know, I, I talk to a lot of leaders and friends who are leaders and I'm like, I take my hat off to you. I really don't know how you do it. It must be so hard. Yeah, I think hopefully, fingers crossed, we're coming through the worst of this now. Yeah. So let's hope we're coming through the, the other end of it. I haven't been on a plane for over a year and I've quite enjoyed it. So I'm actually enjoying staying put. Yeah. But listen, Rav, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Some great insights there. My absolute pleasure. The audience will get some value out of that for sure and start to think about how they can kind of think about building their CS organization around their go-to-market. And you never know, they may hit you up for a bit of advice. So watch out for that as well. Well, my grandfather always used to say that the worst vice is advice is what he used to say. So I'm happy to give my opinion on things, but I try to avoid advice if at all possible. But no, I'm, I'm always happy to hear from people. I love to learn. People have questions. I'm really, really easy to get hold of. I will do my best to respond in a timely manner. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks again, Rav. Thanks for coming on. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Paul. It's been great fun. 